0: We are one Sunday into a four-week series that I am preaching, just on the, really, the, it turns out it's just going to be on the first bit of Acts. We're going to be in Acts for the next, Acts 2, for the next three weeks, and just work our way through. So we've taken the first bit of it today, and last week, we just looked at the verse that starts out the book, where Luke says, so Luke wrote Acts, which is the only book in the New Testament that we have that's on what the early, it's a window into what the early church was doing, what God was doing in the early church the, uh, at the beginning. And um, we have, and then Luke wrote also the gospel of Luke. So he wrote the gospel of Luke, the third gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then the book of Acts. So he says, as he starts sort of Luke 2.0, having written Luke already, he wrote, he wrote Luke to the, a guy named Theophilus. And he says, in the first book, he's meaning his gospel, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And we talked about last week, among other things, how he's referring to Luke as, in this second book, Luke 2.0, as the book where Jesus began to do and to teach. And so what's the strong implication, and I think it's earth-shattering if we get this, of that statement? In this second book, I am... So in the first book, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. But as we know, he was... Cre- Luke records how he was crucified. There's great evidence for the fact that he rose from the grave. There's an empty tomb. We talked about that. He appeared to over 500 at once and other people individually. And then he ascends here in Acts 1 as we looked at last week. And Luke is saying, by implication, in Luke, I told you, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. But here in Luke 2.0 in this book, I'm going to continue, I'm going to tell you about what Jesus continues to do and to teach through his church, through his body. He has not left us. Bodily, he is in heaven, but he is still with us by his spirit. So Jesus actually, um, in fact, if you wanted to sort of take that and rephrase the book of Acts, you could call it, instead of Acts of the Apostles, you could call it the Acts of Jesus Christ through the apostles and through his church. And that continues to this day. That's one of the reasons we call ourselves an Acts 29 church because there are 28 chapters in the book of Acts and we see ourselves as the embodiment of Jesus Christ on earth he is in heaven and he is in us by his spirit continuing the work that he started here that he started in his life and then he continued and continues through his church so in John chapter 14 he says to his disciples he's talking about leaving and they love him so much and they just get depressed you can see sort of their countenances change almost as you read John 14 He says, look, I'm I'm not gonna be with you forever. I'm gonna leave you. And they start to say, like, where are you gonna go, Jesus, that we might follow? He goes, don't worry, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And in that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. In other words, I'm going... I am going away, but I am still going to be with you. How? I'm gonna send you my very life, my very spirit, my very breath. And you're not gonna be orphans. And he's saying, because I live, you too will live. And he says, in that day, in the day that I get to heaven, you will know it because I'm going, you'll know that I'm with my father. Why? Because of what Jen just read. When I get to my Father, I'm going to send you the promise of the Holy Spirit. So like we talked about last week, among other things, when they received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, waiting on the promise of the Father, they knew one thing for sure. He made it. Jesus is at the right hand of power. He's been vindicated, and he's with us inside of us now. He said, actually, at another point, it's better for you that I go. It's better for you. How is it better if you go, Jesus? We love you so much. You're our leader. You're the Messiah. Because he, could, he was shoulder to shoulder with them when he was with them on earth. But when he ascended to the throne on high, he sent them his very spirit to be inside of them. And to be with as many, get this, friend, if you get nothing else, to be with as many as called on his name. That's what the text is this morning to be with and inside of and living in and bringing from death to life as many as would look to Jesus as Savior and call on his name, they would be saved. Um, In Acts 2, Peter says in his sermon, which we'll get to next week, this Jesus God raised up, he's saying, you crucified him. Whenever you preach, friends, and I'm not talking like up here, very few of us get the chance to, to do this, but we preach with our words daily about various things. When we proclaim the most important thing in our lives, the living God and his mercy in Christ Jesus, we ought to proclaim, as Peter does here, that we all had a part in crucifying the Messiah. He died for Mm -hmm. us because we deserve what he took. That's what Peter says here. But then he says, this Jesus that you crucified, God raised up, and of that, he says, we're all witnesses, we ate with him. But he goes on, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. In other words, Peter's saying exactly what I just said. We know that he made it, and he's now given us the promise. He made it, and he's at the right hand of God the Father. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus, you crucified. You thought that he lost, but actually, as he was apparently losing He was accomplishing our salvation by dying in our place. He made himself so weak so that he could take what we deserve. And we know now that his work is finished, and so all he is doing is sitting at the right hand of power while the Father makes of all his opposition a footstool for his feet. This is the march of his kingdom through his church, and this is what we get to look into for the next few weeks. So the first point, just tongues of fire, a little bit of context here under tongues of fire as the, as the Holy Spirit falls on these, on these disciples as, a, as in tongues of fire. This is the Feast of the Harvest. It's also called Pentecost. It's, it's a feast that celebrates the beginning of the ingathering of the crops. So it's a, it's a, it's an agricul- Israel's an agricultural people. Most civilizations were, maybe all. Israel certainly was, and they were celebrating the fact that God had provided this bounty. The harvest was starting to come in, and Pentecost, it was 50 days after Passover. Penta means five. Pentecost is the Greek form of of, uh, the feast of harvest, um, the Jewish feast of harvest. So um, what is happening here, as we sort of think about the context, is that a harvest is happening. God is so perfect in the way he does all things. He is going to bring a harvest, not of wheat, but of people, of eternal creatures, because the work of his son is finished. These same people who crucified Jesus, Peter's gonna say, yeah, you crucified him and I denied him and we all fled and he died for us. So come now and believe on the one you crucified. He is your king and he's given us his spirit to prove it. Amazing. So there's a second meaning during the life of Jesus that had begun to attach itself actually in centuries before leading up to Jesus, to Pentecost, to the Feast of Weeks. So, um, and it was, it was the fact that if we look at Exodus 19, it seems pretty, pretty clear that this is also when God, so 50 days after Passover, the first Passover was celebrated when? Bible quiz, that's right. Seeing if y'all are awake this morning, when God... Brought, he passed over his people, the angel of death, passed over all those who deserved to die as long as they were under the blood that was on the doorpost of the house. And the lamb was killed and eaten in their place and roasted in fire, if there's anything left, a picture of Christ. And they were covered and protected in that. No matter if they were Jew or Egyptian, they were covered if they were under the blood. And then out they went. And he took them with a mighty hand out. And as he took them out across the Red Sea and into the Sinai Peninsula, 50 days later, about according to Exodus 19, if we, if we reckon, is when he comes down on the mountain of Sinai and gives them what? What does he give them at Sinai 50 days after Passover? The law. So it's a celebration, not just of the harvest, but of Sinai and of the giving of the law. And here's this amazing law from God's mouth and how he's made us to be his people and to operate as a people through the law. What is his coming on Sinai like? I saw someone mouth something, and they were, I don't know what it was, but it was like scary, you know? It was a huge deal. God coming to earth, and in power, in manifest, visible power, he blackens the mountain. You can't even, if any animals get too close, they die. Only the ones that God says can come up into my presence in this certain way can come. And they put hedges around the mountain. It's terrifying. That might be with the person's mouth. Terrifying. It's Terrifying. If we come, we can't come to God however we choose because we are unholy and full of sin and he is holy and blameless and powerful and perfect. And so it's a blessing that he comes, but he's unapproachable. Moses has to go up and then come down and bring his word. Here, it's the exact opposite. It's the exact opposite. It's God coming down in such a way that literally the end of Peter's quoting of Joel is, this has now, this time that Joel prophesied has now come, and what is this time characterized by? Anyone and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. So come one and all. He just blew the doors off of God's unapproachability. The curtain was literally torn that divided every person on earth from God's manifest presence. It's now through Jesus Christ alone. You can't, anyone, anyone can now come. And that's what Peter's proclaiming. But in one way, Jesus and his cross for us. Um, The wind and the fire that signal this coming, this onrush of the spirit of the living God, Jesus made it, he sent us the spirit. They really connect, they sort of seem to confirm that connection to Sinai because that's how God came. He came in wind, he came in fire, on the mountain of Sinai. Um, but again, he was unapproachable. And here, we are called to hide in Christ and to call on his name and be saved. So it's very different by contrast. Um, because of this feast, this is one of three major Jewish feasts annually. Jews from all, and Jen did a great, I just gotta say, I would applaud you. Jen did a great job reading all those names, you know, the Phrygians and the Pamphylians. That's, that's a tough roster. Um, but peep Jews from all, because of this major feast, Jews by the thousands, and they even say possibly by the millions. I mean, Jerusalem was normally um, in the hundreds of thousands, I think, and it was probably well over a million, certainly during Passover, during this time as well, possibly. If you've ever been to um, Edinburgh during the Fringe Festival in August, you know that that's kind of what it feels like here. It's packed with Jews, why, from all over the dispersion, um, because they were exiled and, they, and not all of them came back, and so they lived all around the Mediterranean rim. And I'm not going to go through what each of these, uh, the Parthians, the Medes, the Elamites, that's essentially all Iran. So all the way from Iran through to Iraq to Israel to Turkey to Egypt, all the way to Italy and beyond. So all the known world is here. Speaking, yeah, they all know Greek is the language of commerce. They all speak that probably. Um, and some of them maybe have some Hebrew if they read their scriptures, but they all have a mother tongue, and it's in all these different languages, and um, that's that's what they're speaking. And so, what happens to the disciples as they're filled with these uh, with the Holy Spirit, and they have tongues as a fire resting on them? They go out and they start, and it says, "Aren't these Galileans?" And they're speaking in all these languages. What's that saying? They're hillbillies. They're from West Virginia. Nothing against West Virginia, nothing against Galilee, all right? They have these accents, they're from the hills, they're not, they're not city sophisticates, okay? Um, they're not, most of them aren't educated, and yet they're all speaking these perfect, lang- these dialects and these languages from, from all around the Mediterranean world, the known world perfectly. What's happening? The gospel is being proclaimed in the heart language of all these dozens and dozens of people groups. And, it's, and every scholar points this out in every commentary on this. It's the exact reverse of Babel. When God came and he divided those who were trying to, by their own strength, get to him. And he gave them a bunch of different languages when they had one. And it, you can't, When you speak different languages, you can't work together. And so they scattered over the face of the earth. What's he doing? It's very clear, among other things, he's bringing, he's uniting through the work of Christ and through his Holy Spirit, he's making, again, one people for himself. He's uniting. Through one who uh, no more, no, never has man been saved by trying to get to God by cleaning himself up. That's what Babel was. He scattered that action. Jesus is the opposite. Jesus is God coming down to us and living a life that we can't live in our place and dying the death that we deserve in our place. And that is what unites people from all stripes, from all languages, from all ethnicities together. And we see that here. But I think something even more profound, if possible, might be happening here in that we have tongues. We have language. We have language on the very basic level given to these hillbillies from Galilee. Um, they are speaking in ways that they didn't know how to speak before, and they're, they're speaking the gospel that unites people. They're speaking of what Christ has just done. And where else do we have language um, given to a people, to one people? Where do, where's the first place we have in the Bible? We have it in Genesis, in the earliest chapters, Genesis 1 and 2. That's one of the things God makes one creature alone out of all creation in his image, us, man and woman. And one of the signal things that makes us, that shows that we bear the stamp of the divine image is we have speech. We, we, we speak words, we articulate. God is the word. He is the master articulator. It's how he expresses himself is in word. And in giving these words, being given new tongues that unite as a people, that then they go forth and one people begin to fill the earth with this new divine impress and this stamp, we are seeing a recreation of it we're seeing a recreation event. Jesus is going to make everything sad come untrue. This salvation isn't just about you and God. It is about that, but notice I said the word just. It's about Jesus coming to reverse the curse, crush the head of the serpent, he's done away, he's paid the price for sin, he's buried death by death. He's crushed the serpent's head, he's rendered Satan powerless, and he has taken hell in our place. And he's starting things over again. It's just amazing thing. So that's that's tongues of fire. Moving into point two, telling the mighty works of God. What's the message that Peter starts to proclaim? What's the message that all these apostles and disciples, all these 120, not just apostles, 120 in the upper room, are just going out and scattering this message broadcast in all these dialects and languages? What's the message? Well, they said, we hear them, all these different people said, we hear them telling what? The mighty works of God. Okay. Think salvation. What is the major mighty work of God? The major salvation event in the Old Testament? It's the Exodus. I hear it being whispered. It's the Exodus. After the Exodus throughout the rest of the Hebrew Bible, throughout the rest of the Old Testament scripture, it's referred to over and over again when God's power and his might and his mighty arm to save his people is trumpeted the Exodus event has gone back to. Remember how he covered us in the blood and led us out through no good of our own in, from slavery into freedom? It's the Exodus event. When Jesus, backing up a little bit from Acts, when Jesus was still on the earth before his cross, he was transfigured and his glory was shown for a brief moment to a few of his disciples. Okay, Peter, James, and John on a mountain. And God said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. But Jesus, along with Jesus, appeared Moses and Elijah. And it says, it's this cryptic text almost. It's in Luke 9 and elsewhere, I believe. But it says that he was speaking to, what was Jesus talking about with Moses and Elijah? Among other things, it said he was speaking to them about, get this, his exodus. What, is that, what does that mean? All that stuff, this is condensing a lot of theology into a statement, but all the exodus, the literal pulling in space and time history of a massive people from the mightiest nation on earth, out of slavery, from Egypt into a land that God was gonna give them all their own. All that was prefiguring a greater exodus, a greater leading out, leading out of a greater slavery that would come. It was prefiguring what Jesus would come and do when he would lead us through his death out of sin, death, the grip of Satan, and hell. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I have come, all that happened to point to me. I I am leading the true exodus out of the true black, dark shackles of slavery, okay, Um, into the true freedom. It's not a slavery out there. It's not a circumstance. It's here. And there's nothing I can do about it. Someone Someone has to set me free. And Jesus said, I've come to do that. Um, So this is what they're proclaiming. They're proclaiming the gospel, the fact that Jesus has come um, to do this mighty salvation event. Um, And this further connects this Pentecost event to Sinai. As the cross was the greater exodus, so Pentecost here is the greater Sinai. Um, So, okay, what is happening here? People, as we've said, from all over the known world are hearing the gospel of King Jesus proclaimed in a way that they can understand that they might be saved and that they're being united in under one name, Jesus, in a way that's never happened in the history of the world before. Um, I can't read this and not think of one word, Houston. We are, some say, some studies say, the most ethnically diverse city in, if, if in America, possibly in the world and possibly in the history of the world because we're a nation of immigrants. And this area, especially south of West Westheimer, our geography, friends, let me remind you that God has given into our hands. We are responsible for, thank God, what a, what a privilege, what a responsibility for the area that he's placed us in, to proclaim the mighty works of God in this area. And what he was doing then, he has been doing for 2,000 years, and he will do today. And I just want this to encourage you to blow by prayer and... Uh, begging and beseeching God uh, to blow on the embers of, of, of revival. What he did here, he has continued to do and he will do in this day. And I, want, I so want to just be a part of it. I wanna jump on the tube on the Guadalupe and ride the river of his Holy Spirit through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Terrible metaphor, I know. People are just shaking their heads. But he, he is the one doing it and I just want to beg to be a part of it and I see little outbreakings happening and it pleases me and so I want to pray in part at five o'clock today for more for more for more for more so some thought they were drunk it was nine in the morning and they were just speaking in all these languages and it's, they seemed out of their minds and some thought they were drunk and you know what there, there are always gonna be people who think we're just off our rocker. There are always, there's all, all, how does? what's the parlance? People, haters gonna hate? You know, um, haters are gonna hate. Hey, there are always gonna be mockers, friend. And in fact, oftentimes you know that you're right where God has you, opening your lips, preaching the mighty works of God in the way that you're living and with what you're articulating if you are being mocked. Okay, And if that's not happening, you might want to just say, what's going on? Am I living the way I ought to be living? Um, They were being mocked, but they kept on proclaiming the mighty works of God. And they gave solid, cogent arguments for why they weren't, in fact, drunk and why this made sense and what is happening. Let it be the case with us. Let us go on. Let us be mocked and let us go on to be encouraged, not staunched, not discouraged, but encouraged as we're mocked to proclaim to these very people the only way of salvation, his mighty work in Jesus Christ. May it be. Um, again, just think about the difference between, and it's unfair, because Jen just read the beginnings of Peter's sermon. There's a lot more next week. I'm just gonna major on the contours of the gospel in Peter's sermon next week. But um, if you read ahead, I mean, just look at how bold, you, you, you know, he gets up on the soapbox, as it were, and he just starts to proclaim to all these thousands of people, um, what was happening, he begins to explain to them in perfect, in a perfect articulation of why this is the case. He goes back to Joel 2, a minor prophet, and how Jesus saved, and in boldness saying, you crucified him, but he died for you. The very mechanism uh, um, of of his demise is the mechanism of your salvation. Contrast this Peter with the Peter one chapter earlier, who's literally as Jesus is about to lift off and ascend to the right hand of God, the last thing out of his lips and the others is, okay, now, now, is now the time that we're gonna go uh, sack Rome? Is now the time that you're gonna crush the Romans? Is now the time that we can actually see some vindication here? He's still thinking geopolitically. Jesus doesn't wring his hands and shake his head and go, man, I, I thought I was going to go up into the clouds, but I need to stay a lot longer with you guys because you clearly don't get it. Why? Because he knew that he was going to send his very spirit inside of them, and his spirit was going to give power, hey, and understanding. And that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what they received. And we need it every bit as much. Um, It's available to every believer, Okay. And notice too, just before getting to the final point, the last days and really looking at the text in detail, starting with um, the the bit from Joel, um, notice too that Peter, what does he do when he gets up? And again, it's not fair because we haven't, Jen didn't read the rest of his sermon, but he gets up and he does this throughout his sermon, Peter does. He starts off by saying, hey, let me help you make sense of this. It's nine in the morning, we're not drunk. Even if we did drink, it wouldn't be this early, I assure you. And it's made sense of because what is now now being fulfilled is a centuries-old prophecy from Joel chapter 2. He gets up and he begins to unpack the scriptures. Whenever, stop and and look at me and listen to me. One One of the ways that you can tell that the Holy Spirit has come on you and is filling you for the purpose of proclaiming the mighty works of God is this you are have a new hunger and a new understanding for the word of God. The spirit of God and the word of God always work in complement. The Holy Spirit loves one thing most. He loves to spotlight Jesus Christ. If it, It's one bit of evidence that someone is soaked in the spirit of God. If they are preaching the gospel of Christ, living for us, crucified in our place, Risen in victory, it's available for you, friend. And just the 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 Bible comes alive, like it's almost like you've never read it before, and you have this voracious appetite for it. Not to mention that you get full of all these fruit that Paul mentions later. You get kinder, you get more patient, you get more gentle. But this is one bit of evidence. Peter just starts to unpack the scripture. The Spirit of God. And the word of God. They always go together. And so what is the enemy going to try to do? He's going to try to, in the church and in believers, separate the two. Let's have these people full of spirit and not anchored to the word and just crazy as loons but full of power. And let's have this segment of the church over here be anchored in the word but be basically accusing the spirit and saying, not meaning to, but that those things aren't for today and, um, and dry as a bone. No. Jesus is the word of God and he was filled with the spirit. And this is a picture of him continuing to work through his body. Focused like a dog on a bone on the word of God. Soaking in it day and night. Listening to the teaching. Meditate on it. Meditating on it. Living their lives by it. Trumpeting Christ. But filled with the spirit. Lord, would you make us that kind of people? Things won't change at all until we are. And when we are, everything changes. And I can see it, and it's beautiful. And I thank God for it. The last point here, the last days, just looking at um, what Peter starts to proclaim here, in, starting in verse 14 and really in 17, this is what Joel prophesied, verse 17, and in the last days it shall be. So he's, he's saying, look, in the last days, things are going to look like this. Things are gonna look like this. God's gonna be revealing himself, not just to a few select people, but he's going to be revealing himself in Christ to all sorts of people. In other words, let me just stop here and say, before we get to the pour out part, let me just say this, in the last days. He's saying, look, this, the last days have begun. This is the fulfillment of Joel 2. That's one of the many things Peter's saying here. These last days are now here. Now, let me ask you a question that uh, Jack Deere, a teacher, was often fond of asking when he would unpack this text. What is more last than last? What am I saying there? I'm saying what Peter did, which is these are the last days, and oftentimes when you hear about the last days being talked about, it's sometime in the future. Peter's saying, no, that's now. The only thing that's going to come after this is Christ's return in power. Okay, so we have a short window of time to proclaim the gospel, to see as many one to Christ as possible, from as many nations, from as many languages, from as many parts of the world. That's, that's our mission. There's only one thing left to do. It's like the angels said to the Galileans when they were still staring up in the clouds after Jesus had ascended, hey guys, don't you know, he's going to come back just like he left. In other words, there's only one thing to do between his going and his coming, and that's to proclaim what he's done. That's why he came, okay? So that's our mission. If you need a mission, if you're bored in life, if you've got a sense of ennui or whatever it is, a lack of purpose, I am telling you, this is what you're made for, to know God and to make him known in the person of Jesus Christ. So these are the last days. Um, and, and, and in short, what, Paul, what Peter says here is, there's no more distinction. In the past, he gave his spirit in power to a select few. To preach his word, but now um, it's going to be to—he's basically saying I'm no longer being selective. It's going to be to all sexes, boys, girls, to both sexes, boys, girls, to any age, young and old, and to any rank, highborn or low, educated, uneducated. Um, Christ—he destroys all these distinctions. Um, we remain these things, but what identifies us now is one thing. Christ. We become children of the Most High God by getting what he is, because he took what we were on himself and buried it, and he's doing something new. Um, The other thing is that in the past, uh, God is saying, or Peter's saying, and God is saying through Peter, in the past, uh, it's like God sprinkled his spirit on on select people, but now, the verb he uses is, now, what Joel said is coming to pass, he will pour and he is pouring out. And the best way I could think of this, and I I was reading Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones later and I was gratified to find out that he actually used the same illustration. Maybe it's because he's from Britain. Um, But Scottish showers. We spent four years in Scotland. And I quickly discovered that, first of all, Edinburgh is a, uh, if you ever go there, let me just save you the trouble of investing $15 in an umbrella, don't even bother. It's, a, it's an umbrella eating city. You literally will pass by trash cans with 15 umbrellas, broken, all broken, stuffed in. It's super windy. But also, you don't need an umbrella. Umbrellas are for tourists. And here's why. Because, because you hear of the British showers, and it's true in Scotland too. Essentially, what you do is you have a nice, you have the triple threat, you have the, because it never gets warm in Scotland, word of warning, beautiful, beautiful place, but it's cold, so that's why it's not overpopulated. Uh, triple threat, you get your gloves. You got your scarf and you got your toboggan. And um, you also just have a coat with a nice collar on it. And you just flip. I, I've never, you've always wondered like, are these for direct decoration? No, sir. These are for use. You flip it and you, you turtle and you pull your neck down. And when it's spitting rain, you just do this. This is a Scottish walk. You just do this and you walk sometimes against the wind. And if it's against the wind, you can just lean as far forward as you want to. And um, the point is though, It's a very different type of rain. In Scotland, it's just constantly spitting rain. But the collar's gonna take care of it. And that's kind of the way that God was giving out a spirit in the past. But now Peter's saying it's like a Houston tea storm. Man, when I got back here and you try that in Houston and you get caught in a dump, a deluge, you're done. Like you might as well just go take a shower in your clothes because you're finished. If you don't have an umbrella, a, a raincoat's not gonna help you when, it, when Houston decides to dump on you. Five minutes later, it could be super sunny, right? That's the exact expression used here is that God is going to pour out liberally his spirit. Um, it's not just for these 120. It's not just for the apostles. 3,000 come to Christ this day. 2,000 more like the next day or two. And the church just continues to grow as the word multiplies and as God's people are filled with the spirit. In other words, Christ is just multiplying. His body, his body, when he is in heaven at the right hand of power, um, uh, controlling all things because of his finished work. And his body is growing, growing, growing with his spirit poured out. Um, What will this look like? signs, uh, prophecy, vision, dreams, wonder signs, God is going to be speaking in all sorts of ways. We see this today in this congregation. We hear from the Lord. We have his manifest word of the Old and the New Testament that we hear from him. His sheep know his voice as well as he speaks Uh, We have to measure it against his word and in community, but we hear him in dreams and visions. We have people here in this congregation who regularly have dreams, visions, words of knowledge. This is all gifts of the Holy Spirit. You see Muslims especially coming to Christ a ton in the Middle East and here through dreams. They didn't know who Jesus was, and they see a man in white, and then somebody says, oh, that's, can we read Revelation 1 real quick? That's Jesus. God is going to be revealing himself, pouring out to all people through his spirit in these ways, he's gonna be speaking it in all these ways. This is going to, Peter's saying these are the last days and this isn't gonna be exceptional. This is gonna characterize these days. Um, guys, how does this bit from uh, Joel end? In verse 21, Peter says this. He's finishing off the Joel prophecy. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let me say this. You cannot, some people want to cordon off The first bit where Peter says, these are the last days. There's nothing after last except for Christ returning again. This is what's gonna characterize these days. God revealing himself, pouring out his spirit and revealing himself in all sorts of ways, visions, dreams, prophecies, to all ages, to all sexes, uh, um, to all rank and station and education. You can't say that was for the early church. But verse 21, where anyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved, that will take. That's for, that's for the whole church for all time, until Christ returns. But the first bit, no. That's not fair, no fair. That's bad reading, That's a bad hermeneutic. Peter's saying, "This, all this is going to characterize the last days. Okay, I said that. Now let me say this. One thing that I just skipped, and that we often skip, is verse 19 and 20. When you hear this text preached, oftentimes you'll hear this skipped, and I will show wonders in the heavens above. And signs on the earth below, blood, fire, vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. Why do we skip that? Because it's hard. Everything else seems to be great. I want the other stuff. I want God speaking to me and pouring, pouring out his spirit on me. And I want to see everyone calling on the name of the Lord to be saved. And that's happening. But this stuff's scary. Fire, moon to blood, sun darkened, y'all, that's judgment language. Why is that here? I'm not sure, but I think that it's here because this is part and parcel of God coming in a manifest presence to be with a people who are riddled with sin. When he comes, he comes in all of himself. He comes as just and holy. The thing about it, though, is that I think that the, the part of the text that we see there that I just read is absorbed for these last days, for this time until Christ returns in power and finishes the last days and makes everything sad come untrue and does away with all opposition and evil and sin for good. I think that that is something that Christ literally embodies and takes into himself on the cross. You see this kind of language happening as Christ is hanging on the cross, this instrument of Roman torture and shame. Everything goes dark. The rocks start to crack. All of creation is moaning and wailing and his blood is being shed for us. What is happening? He is staying the judgment of God for this time, for these last days. And Peter is just up on a box saying, flee to Christ! Now is the time! It won't last forever. Because when he comes again, he, if you are not hiding in him, in he who absorbed your punishment in your place, you, you will be judged by God based on your exact merits and demerits. Don't let that happen. Flee to Christ now. Now is the day of salvation. I have an illustration that I've used before, so I apologize, but I want to use it again because it's helpful. Um, When the pioneers would drive west across the prairie, especially through the Midwest, it was just a sea of high grass. And there were dangers, inerrant dangers, the, 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 the Indians and so on and so forth, Um, but the biggest danger one of the biggest dangers was when they would be driving west in their caravans and in their um, covered wagons and on their horses and on foot sometimes they would see a flicker in the distance and they quickly began to realize we better do something fast because what that flicker was quickly noticed as was it's a prairie fire and we are in a sea of grass and when you connect the two it doesn't end well there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to go. And those prairie fires would blow as fast as the wind blew, faster than any man can run. And they would, they would just burn, they would just incinerate to ashes all parties that were, in, that were in its way. And so you saw a flicker and you maybe had a few minutes to do something about it. And so what these pioneers learned to do is to create what they called a burn circle. What they would do is they would actually make fire and burn out a circle of grass and they would stand in that burn circle. And the, as the fire would come, it would sweep over them and it would sweep right around them. And they would be safe because there was nothing left to burn because they were standing in the place where the fire had already been. It was the way to survive the judgment. And let me tell you, friends, one of the things that Peter is saying here is that there is one burn circle where the fire has been, the fire is coming. It is coming and is going to burn away all chaff, all impurity, and all sin. But Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, became sin for all those who look to him. He is the burn circle and the only burn circle in whom we may stand and be safe. Under that blood, the lamb has to be consumed, and then whatever isn't consumed of the Passover lamb has to be completely burned by fire. That's Jesus He's the one who keeps us safe, and that's our message. And not only does he keep us safe from the judgment of God, he reconciles us to the Father in relationship, and he begins to make all things new in our lives and in the areas that we go into. Hey, there's still brokenness. There's still sin every day that we need to confess. Martin Luther said the the first of the 95 theses, right, is that the Christian life ought to be one of ongoing and continual repentance. But we know that we have an advocate who stands before the Father who said, I took everything that they've ever done or will do that will offend you, Father. And I took it into myself and I was burned to beyond recognition and I buried it and I left it in the ground and I rose vindicated. And they are now vindicated if they have looked to me by faith. They are hid in me. And the Father says, yes, yes, they are safe. They are mine. As truly as you are mine, so are they. And he begins to make us new. And so this is the message that Peter proclaims. Um it's a beautiful message. And as I close, let me just close with, um, with something that I heard in a podcast recently. He says this. He says, "Those people who went out proclaiming a crucified Messiah, the exact thing that Peter's proclaiming here and that the church has been proclaiming for the past 2,000 years, within 400 years had completely overcome the Roman Empire that had put their Messiah to death." How did this happen? Well, simply stated. They went out and loved like Jesus loved. They lived like Jesus lived. They served like Jesus served. And when they were persecuted and when they were put to death, they prayed for their persecutors the way Jesus did. They were countercultural. They loved differently. How so? Well, when babies were left out because they were deformed or because they were female, uh, which often happened, when they were left out in trash heaps and in the woods to die of exposure, the Christians would go and rescue those babies, bring them into their homes, raise them as their own, and over time, These Romans who worship power and authority and the hedonistic pleasures of the flesh, they looked at this group of nothings who worshiped a a crucified shamed Messiah and they looked at how they lived and they came to believe not just, quote, that is a better life, but that is real life. And they came to believe a remarkable thing. That crucified Messiah was in fact the Lord of the world and the God of the universe who made himself known in Jesus and the empire changed. And he says, and why? did it happen? And all of that is very good, but I think that he misses a step. And I want to close with this. He says, why does it happen? Because the Christians went out in love in a countercultural way. And that is true. But my question is, and why did that happen? Why do you go from a Peter who denies Christ three times, one who has lived with the most amazing person who has done all sorts of, he has loved the unlovable, including Peter, for three years so well, and he denies him. And he goes from that to preaching Christ and seeing 3,000 saved. And on it goes to the book of Acts, and on it's gone for, the, gone for the past 2,000 years. Why? What was the difference? And the difference was, again, to go back with what I started with, to go back to what I started with, Acts 1.1. The difference is that Christ is no longer dead. He's risen, he's ascended, he's alive, and we know that because he has sent us the promise of the Father. He said, when I get there, you will know because I'm gonna send my spirit down. Christ continues to work just like he did on earth and just like he does here through you, his body. And don't you let anyone tell you differently. All of him, all of his word, all of his spirit is for all of the people of God for today. And he can and will continue to do what we see here, here in Houston. And I, for one, wanna be a part of it. And I think that I am. So let's blow on those embers together now and, uh, and, and tonight as we pray. Let me close this in prayer. Lord, you have done it all. You are doing it all There is no meaning or significance um, outside of you. And so we just pray that you would continue to fixate us on Jesus Christ, on your word, um, and fill us with your Holy Spirit. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.